0: Welcome back to This Person I Met. In today's episode, we have a conversation with Sofia Mariver. Now a physician scientist with a focus in breast cancer and woman affected with aggressive breast cancer phenotypes, she was once the only female out of 52 in her science class. But since then, she has been a pioneering Argentinian woman in academia, constantly pushing open doors in research and leading the way for younger generations of scientists. She's also a professor of epidemiology in the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Michigan. In today's episode, Professor Mariver shares all her incredible achievements and life journey in a most humble manner, along with her own first-hand experience with cancer, the very disease she studies. Uh, So to begin, can you maybe introduce yourself and tell me how you got to this point in your life?
1: Um... I am Sophia Mariver and uh, I'm a physician scientist at the University of Michigan and uh, that's my my craft is what I do
0: Mm -hmm. and how did you get to this point
1: well um it all depends when you where you want to (laughs) start if you want to start at the very beginning
0: yeah very um
1: Probably I was about five years old when I decided I would be a scientist of some sort. Uh, I just uh, loved everything about uh, discovering new things and you know, fixing problems. And I realized early on that the physical world was very intriguing. So I basically geared up for that kind of a uh, life mm-hmm. from the time I was very young. The child, so it's a uh, pretty funny how little I knew, but I somehow, uh, felt it, uh, at a very visceral level. So it stayed with me my whole life.
0: And were you inspired by people around you, or kind of what what started this interest for you?
1: You know, it, I'm trying to to figure that out. Uh, sometimes because I asked I asked this question so often. Probably related to the fact that I, um, uh, my parents were uh, very uh, creative people who, you know, never had any assignment or distinctions to what uh, a woman could do with the world, or so I didn't know. There were any limitations so there would be any challenges <laughs> along the way because there were no challenges at home so home and school is all i knew but um also i grew up surrounded by books you know we lived in a small apartment but um When I was uh, later on in elementary school, I counted how many books we had, and we had 20,000 books Mm -hmm. in my home, which I didn't understand at that time, but I understand now. It's a very significant library. (laughs) So I was surrounded by books, and I was curious. So I think that's probably the inspiration.
0: And can you tell me a little bit about your research now? So, yeah, my research
1: has always been to try to understand questions um, that are important for human health. Um, Even when um, I was a PhD in physics first, when I worked in physics, I was also interested in using physics to understand better biology. Because, um, you know, the trajectory of biology into computational methodologies, into engineering, into physics, it has been relatively recent trajectory of serious work in that regard. But I thought very early on in my life that there should be more physics in biology. And so, you know, so my present work has to do with really understanding at a deep fundamental level, how do cancer spread to different parts of the body and how do they acquire the resistance to most of the therapies we uh, try to treat them with.
0: And you specialize in breast cancer?
1: Well, that has always been my clinical specialty, uh, but I am a general oncologist by uh, credential. Mm -hmm. So I'm board certified in oncology. uh, And so uh, now I really work on breast cancer brain metastasis bladder cancer and i have a big initiative that i direct in blood in uh, lung cancer
0: mm-hmm. as
1: well so yeah i'm not limited in my research to breast cancer but in my clinic i focus on breast cancer
0: so why why do you focus on breast cancer in your clinic
1: also kind of an accident of history you know i was uh, I was finishing my residency in internal medicine and I was gonna go into a fellowship in hematology oncology, which is the logical trajectory for somebody who wants to be an academic physician scientist is you do a fellowship after residency. And um, I was in the process of beginning a procedure on a patient and I had my gloves on and, uh, you know, I I was told in the nurses station that I had a phone call that was urgent, so I went out with my gloves, holding my hands up, and somebody held the phone to my to my ear, and they said, "Well, we'd like you to start working with us and um, trying to clone the BRCA1 gene that." Potentially causes breast and ovarian cancer that runs in families. And the person on the other side of the phone was Francis Collins, a very famous scientist who later on became the head of the Human Genome Project and later on became the head of the National Institutes of Health. But uh, at that time, he was a professor of Michigan. And so I recognized uh, who, who he was and I said, Well, why not? That sounds good. And I said yes and I um went back to my procedure so that phone call took about half a minute and that pretty much is the reason because it could have been somebody else calling.
0: Yeah.
1: I you know I have a love of science and medicine and I really like all the questions. So at that time in particular I wasn't committed to any one kind of cancer. Breast cancer also had the appeal that it has traditionally led within oncology led at the forefront of new discoveries in molecular uh, understandings of the cell. So for a number of reasons, because it's so common, it's such a massive public health problem, and also because there is a lot of advocacy. I I, I don't know all the sociological reasons, but somehow breast cancer is usually at the forefront and the other cancers follow. Um, so, so that was another appeal. I always like to be at the forefront. So.
0: And as you uh, continued forward with this, I think earlier you mentioned that uh, you know, like people have uh, preconceptions about like what women can achieve in science and STEM. Did you experience any of this, or no? not really?
1: Well, yes, of course, I experienced lots of that. Uh, um, as soon as I, I mean, interestingly enough, in a very um sort of traditionally associated with a macho like culture like Argentina, uh, in 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 science was. Uh, truly um, no exception, I'm sure. It turns out that when I started the university in Buenos Aires, uh, about 50% of the students in physics were women. And then when I decided to emigrate and left Argentina to come to study and finish my doctorate and my studies in physics in, in the United States, the first day of classes at the University of Maryland in College Park, I went to the orientation gathering and they sent me to a particular room and I opened the door and I realized it's all guys. And and I was the only person. So I closed the door and I went back and I said, um, I, think, I think I'm in the wrong room. There are no women in that room. She says, oh, no, that's your class. You are the only woman. <laughs> so it was shocking to me. Where is everybody? you know so then i learned that that was the reality of stem in uh you know in in the united states in the mid 70s uh that's how it was and even today of course we don't have that many women in stem but we have more much many more than one out of 52 but um but that was shocking And yes, I mean, you know, I had to contend with being a woman, but also being an immigrant and having an accent and not, you know, speaking English properly because I was sent to English school by my parents who had the foresight to know that if you want to be in science, you better know English. So um, I always, uh, yeah, I always had to contend with that assumption that I'm probably not as good. That's just part of the story, always.
0: Um, do you think that there aren't as many women in STEM because it's just it's just like a societal thing, or how do you, how do you think we can what, how do what do you think we can do to help this?
1: Yeah, well, I think one thing that helps is to have models. You know, it's just the chicken and egg right problem. But if you say okay, I'm gonna say that the chicken goes first or something, you have to say what what is one problem um uh, you, you know we need more role models we need more women who are successful who have a craft who who have a job who embrace the the career um as just a matter of factly as something they will do and that um the career will also mold to them I mean, traditionally, I think a lot of women did not go into STEM because it was logistically very difficult. You know, early in my career when I had small children, I almost never went to meetings because there were there was there were absolutely no accommodations. If I had a baby and I was nursing a baby, there was absolutely no accommodation whatsoever that could have been made. Well, <laughs> you typically can nurse a baby for up to a year. I didn't have those luxuries because I wanted to get on with my career. So, you know, I you, one has to make a lot of sacrifices that are unnecessary. If there is a system that contemplates the fact that the, the women may want to have children and there are some minor accommodations that make a huge difference. So, um, you know, and also just... Um, you know, there is a certain resilience that it takes to often perceive that you are not taken as seriously as your male colleagues or as, you know, people who are who were born in the US versus an immigrant and uh, somebody who looks a little different. You know, everyone has a story. When you are an immigrant, you are different in some way. And um, you would think in science, none of that would show up, but it uh, it does. I think, again, I think having role models to answer your question specifically, I think you have more senior women that help other women is fundamental, That ha- that can have conversations about it, you know? and some of these conversations last 10 minutes you know it isn't that it's that difficult but people feel very empowered by by senior scientists senior physicians encouraging people who maybe did not grow up in a in a home where everyone went to college and everyone was a professor and that kind of thing you know people who are the first one to go to college well they They can aspire to a very successful career. What difference does it make? But somebody has to speak to them and say something. Positive, give hope, provide some sort of framework for what their life would look like in the future. They have to imagine it. If you don't imagine it, it will never happen. Mm -hmm. So I had the, the privilege really of imagining it very early on. So, when I encountered all these difficulties, I thought, "Whoa, okay, I guess I think I'm an idiot, but okay, no problem. I'll prove otherwise." You know, I didn't i mean it I didn't like it. I would have preferred otherwise, like I'm like everyone else, but you know, didn't change a lot of, mm-hmm. of what I ended up doing
0: and kind of going back to um your your career. Uh, I know that you're also a professor, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. And does your uh, role as a professor, does it relate or connect at all to um, your research in cancer?
1: Yeah, completely. Because, you know, the way I profess and the way I teach is usually in my laboratory. I teach in my clinic to, to medical students and fellows who rotate from time to time. Um, throughout my career I had different teaching opportunities for example I took advantage of the potential to teach undergraduates global health because uh, the school of public health at Michigan didn't used to have a public health major for undergraduates so I felt that there was some some opportunity, some gap in the curriculum, and uh, I really, really enjoy doing that for five or six years the, I taught as freshmen and seniors, juniors and seniors, so that was two different types of courses one much more advanced methods and the other one more more fundamental uh first uh, course in global health, so I enjoyed that a lot. I enjoy teaching at the bedside, you know, when when I uh, took care of patients on the wards in the hospital, and I would go in and be the professor and uh, the residents would present patients to me and we would discuss what to do, how to make them better. I really enjoy doing that. So, you know, there is teaching. There is teaching in everything you do when you are an academic. You know, every aspect of your work life has some junior companion at your elbow, so to speak, that is also trying to be like you and to some extent, you know, forge their own path. But they are in academia because they want to be researchers. And so you have to teach them.
0: And do you prefer teaching or researching?
1: No, it's all the same to me. I mean, there is, a, they cannot be extricate from each other because, um, you know, when you have a large group of people, uh, like I do, uh, you know, I have to, my my job is to understand the overall direction of the experiments, but I don't go in the lab and personally do any more experiments myself I miss that a bit but it has been many years that you know I just don't do that because usually I would you know ruin the experiment because I would get phone calls and urgent things and I would have meetings and so it would not be possible for me but I so so they are my my hands and and eyes Uh, and so it's a team effort you know so that's kind of the academic Um, group work that we do, and it's very special. Mm
0: -hmm. And um, can you tell me a little bit about your own diagnosis with breast cancer Um, and how did you feel about that, especially because you have such extensive knowledge about this kind of cancer?
1: Right. Uh, Well, um, yeah, I mean, I remember the day very well, I was in Chicago visiting a company uh, which is now closely associated with the University of Michigan. And I knew the CEO and I was visiting some others. And um, I was gonna meet with my daughter, my little daughter, not so little, she was in college at the University of Chicago then, but anyway, she's the baby. And then um, we were gonna just go to Michigan Avenue and buy shoes at the Adidas store there so we bought the shoes and by the time it was time to the time we tried on the shoes and the time i had to pay for them i was in line to pay for them when i got the phone call uh that i had cancer uh and then i got a second phone call that i had cancer in both breasts uh not just in one breast and so you know by then i guess they had already put my credit card through and you know and the time it took to buy the shoes uh, I got the news, but, you know, I was busy buying the shoes, so I had to complete that task. Couldn't freak out too much. No, actually, I um, I took it in stride. I assumed um, that I would be in good hands with, with doctors that, you know, I identified, that I know. They were my colleagues. And, you know, only a fool is her own doctor, so I wasn't going to manage my own disease. And... Um, I, um, I think I did very well. you know, it's just something that happens to you. And so I have always told my patients, cancer is something that happens to you. It's not something that you are. It shouldn't define you. It doesn't inhabit you. You have to decide to just make it uh, make it uh, work for you to, to get rid of it and uh, then just move on with everything. And in fact, move on with everything at the same time, you're getting rid of it. Don't put anything on hold. So I've always given that advice when people ask. And so I took my own advice and I just, uh, you know, uh, completed my visit in Chicago. I think I went to dinner with my daughter and um, I think telling the children was the hardest part. Because they took it, uh, you know, much worse than I did, but uh, they had faith in science, and you know, uh, so you know that's um, that was uh, that's uh, six years now ago, and uh, you know I still take a medicine, and uh, you know the medicine doesn't always agree with me. Like this morning it, I'm not feeling fantastic with it um and uh, but you know, I took it, and I'll just deal with it, you know, um and that's that's the that's the journey. It's just to not let it become your life. It's a good thing, it's difficult, it's easier said than done for some people, but for me, it hasn't been that hard. It hasn't been that hard. Um, I know I could get a recurrence, um, you know, I know that could happen in breast cancer. One can get a recurrence 40 years after the diagnosis even. So it can happen anytime, but as the years go by, it's less likely and six years have gone by. So it's a good thing. Nobody lives forever, so it's okay. Yeah.
0: So would you say you felt minimal fear?
1: Yeah, I I, I didn't feel any fear. I didn't feel any fear. I guess knowledge is power. And I had so much knowledge about what was going to happen and how things would, would work out. I discovered some things along the way, for example, that I am using now when I speak to my patients. You know, when you know you're going to lose both breasts, there is a process of accepting that. You know it's a it's a big part of your body that is all of a sudden going to be gone, and you're gonna get different breasts in in their place, but they're never gonna be your breasts, so you know it's um it's a process that I develop some strategies to deal with it and you know just elaborate in my head you know just think it through and, and look at the advantages you know just you know. The new breasts will never sag, and they can be whatever size I want them to be, so possibly smaller than my previous breasts that I sometimes felt were getting in the way of clothes, and you know, I happen to like clothes, so that was something I could hook up to and thinking, "Mm, okay, it'll be easier to button up shirts now, and you know maybe certain swimsuits will look better even you know i mean very trivial stuff but you have to hang on to something that makes you slightly happy and uh at least that was my attitude and and uh you know it just you move on again it's all the principle of not letting the cancer be you
0: and so you continue and, to work throughout all your treatments? As well.
1: well, pretty much. I mean, obviously not when I had the surgery, I had to be home for about two, three weeks and, uh, and people were coming and going and everybody was so worried about me and I couldn't keep people from coming to the door, bringing stuff and everybody was so wonderful. But truthfully, uh, all I needed to do was just chill and just, uh, you know, uh, overdose on on some PBS uh, programming or something. I think I watched all the seasons of Paul Dark. Uh, it's an interesting PBS historic series from the Cornwalls. Anyway, it was just something to watch, and so I I just watched the whole thing. And uh, I have two daughters, and they took turns coming to visit me from out of state, and. Uh, and I just have, you know, when you are ill and you're going through cancer therapy, there is usually a small circle that, that are important. I mean, everyone is important, but it's very important to just be in touch with a very small circle. You don't need many people, but you of course always benefit from your friends sending a good word. That was very pleasant and, and very, very uh, rewarding. hear from a lot of friends and to get flowers and all that for sure but physically you just need to heal yourself you need to focus on healing and just eating right and just relaxing about it you know you have to be patient the body takes a certain amount of time to heal if you align your brain the brain controls everything so if you align your brain with healing then you eat right. You start craving things that your body needs, and then if you have somebody helpful around you who bring you an orange or bring you some chicken soup, then that's what you eat, and so on and so forth until you heal. You know, with surgery. This surgery is pretty extensive. Bilateral mastectomies are very extensive surgery, so you have to heal for about two three weeks minimum.
0: And so yeah. How did you feel about um, the treatment itself, um, with all your background knowledge, and did it make you feel a certain way about it, or did? It
1: well, I was very lucky that there was a a critical clinical trial, you know, a trial that compared giving chemotherapy uh, or not giving chemotherapy, depending on the molecular makeup of tumors. And that trial had taken many, many years to complete, and there was. No reason to believe it would be the results would be out or or apparent by the time any one year came along. along. But I was very lucky that the results became known just a few months before I was diagnosed, and so the the molecular makeup of my tumor was not the I would say the most benign type of makeup. I mean the tumor is malignant, but there is a gradation of how aggressive tumors are. And my tumor was not the the mildest one. It wasn't the most aggressive one. It was somewhere in between, but the actual number was on the side where it was found in that clinical trial that people did not benefit that much from chemotherapy. So nowadays, routinely chemotherapy is not even offered in my case, it was just the early days, so it was still discussed, but I was able to make the decision to not take chemotherapy, which is intravenous and, you know, it it, it, it goes on for several months. And, you know, I, I, I had I had that decision to make, but based on the science, I was able to feel good about making the decision. Otherwise, if the science had indicated that I would have had a survival advantage, then I would have taken it. So it was really very uh, helpful. And I was very willing to speak about this because I'm always willing to speak about supporting research funding. Because if we don't have funding, we never find anything out. And so we can't help people. And in my case, it was huge help to know that I was really on the right track just taking the oral
0: medication. Mm. And I think you mentioned this a little bit before, but um, has cancer changed the way that you approach patients?
1: Yeah, I think, I think he has given me some new tools about how to accept if they need drastic surgery like I needed, or how to just accept that for a few weeks to months, your life is going to be highly disrupted. And But we are lucky with breast cancer, thanks to science. It's not a lot of luck in that. It's it's through hard work of science of many thousands and and hundreds of thousands of patients and physicians and researchers that we know a lot. And so, you know, we could know more, but we know a lot. And so it's very lucky to, to think of it that way. So, you know, I... I feel that I am um, in a stronger position. I don't always talk. In fact, most of the time I don't say anything to patients, but occasionally, for example, if a patient is is afraid of the medicine that I take, you know, just in passing, when I talk to to that patient, I may mention, oh, by the way, you know, I take this medicine every day, I had cancer. And they are like, oh, you know and you know here i am talking to them i seem to be working i i look semi-normal i mean you know nothing horrendous happened to me uh and so you know it it gives people some strength to know that somebody they're you know having a friendly conversation with actually took the medicine this morning you know it's just how it, you know it gives people some strength I'm relating relating to that i Again, I don't know if that's a good idea for doctors to constantly be talking about their own story. I think that's not a good idea, but occasionally it it is a you see the opportunity to just uh, see if you can lighten the load. Mm-hmm.
0: And now that it's been six years, I think you mentioned, um, what what are things that you've learned from this journey, um, and has maybe have things changed about uh, your research after having firsthand experience with cancer?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, now that you ask, you know, I think it has given me a certain sense of urgency, you know, it's like, okay, if something were to happen, I would be very sorry if I didn't do this experiment or if I didn't pursue this line of work. Because if something were to happen and I get a recurrence and I need to be treated or, you know, whatever, I, you know, I will not have the chance maybe. So there is a certain urgency to to deliver on my work, I suppose. Um, you know, I think I've always been a pretty hard worker, uh, but I think I work harder than I might have uh, over time, which is which which is good because I read some articles that said that women who undergo bilateral mastectomies, like forty five percent of them, don't return to work. This is an article. Actually, the the main author is from the University of Michigan, and it is an article that poses more questions than it answers because it doesn't answer the question of why and, and why is very difficult to know in science how is easier but why is very hard and so but but that's the but that's what you want to know with, with human behavior you want to know why because if you don't know why you can modify it you know, in in on the at the bench in the lab, if you know how, it's sufficient most of the time to modify something. But human behavior, you kind of need to know why. And so, what I had read that, and I was kind of concerned. Well, maybe it weakens you in some way, or it discourages you, it depresses you, whatever. But I haven't experienced that, you know. Um So for me, it has been a, an impetus to work harder and uh, to be, you know, more resolute and to not let people discourage me from working. Because believe it or not, even at this stage of my career, even after all these years, some doors that shouldn't be closed are still closed to me. And that's, you know, that's part of reality, you know. And I still have to push them open and so, you know, so I've had more resolve to not give up on some things because after a while you get tired of always struggling and you say, okay, I give up on that one. That one's life's too short. But I I do less of that, I think, since my diagnosis. I just try to push all the doors open for myself and for, more importantly, for the people coming behind me.
0: And is there advice that you would give to um a future generation of scientists
1: yes i want to tell them that it's a great uh, life it is a really really fabulous life i mean it is it is a great way to spend your life and uh surrounded by people who are committed to making
0: you know society better
1: and uh yeah and to appreciate appreciate every day, you know, people who work in science uh, or art, you know, writers and uh, like yourself or or artists, you know, they, they get up in the morning to make the world a better place. What better companions? So that's my message. It's a great life. You know, you won't be poor, most likely, you know, uh, you won't be very rich, but but what you will have, money cannot buy. So you'll have enough money for everything, money can buy that you will need. And you will have things that money can, that you can buy. And that's, you cannot say that about all professions. So I, that's my message. Just go for it. It's really fun.
0: And is there anything that you'd like to add?
1: No. No, thank you for having me. I'm I'm really so amazed at uh, your journey and uh, I can't wait to see the rest of it. Thank From you- when you were a little girl at my house, I remember at the Christmas parties